welcome to another episode of Doctor Who Panel to Panel. This is Jeremy Bement, your host, welcoming you to episode number 163 of Panel to Panel. Thank you very much for downloading this episode. Uh, here's what is in store for this uh, new episode of Panel to Panel. We'll start out like we always do, by checking out the news. We'll see what is new in the world of Doctor Who comics, which right now is kind of quiet, but um, there's a little bit of news, so we'll cover that. And then we are going to do a review. We will open the Pandorica on the brand new comic that just came out from Titan Comics. I have it right here in my hands. You can hear the paper shuffling as I flip it. It is Doctor Who Doomsday number one, part one of a two-parter featuring uh, Doom and uh, the Missy version of the Master. So we'll take a look at that and see what I personally thought of it. And then we are going to go way back in the archives, way back to episode number five of Doctor Who Panel to Panel, to check on an interview that I did way back then with someone who is a critically acclaimed uh, comic creator, writer, artist. Uh, some of you will probably know his artwork and stories from the Muppet Show comic that Boom Studios came out with back in the uh, early 2000s. He does his own comic strip called Hotel Fred. He's even done some kind of one-shot comic strips for Doctor Who magazine. Uh, his name is Roger Langridge, and he is the longtime letterer of the Doctor Who comic strip. He's been doing it for many, many years now. And way back in episode five, I had a chance to, to talk with him. He's one of my favorite artists. His, his art style is very reminiscent of kind of turn-of-the-century 1900s type uh, comic art style. And it's just amazing to look at his art, amazing to see what he does. And I think you'll enjoy this this interview I did with Roger way back then, especially if you are a newer uh, listener to Dr. Who Panel to Panel, and probably haven't checked out this, this interview. So that is uh, what we have on store for this episode. A couple things I want to go over real quick. Uh, please do me a favor and check out my website, which is drwhocomics.com. You can find every Monday and Thursday a new uh, installment or a new page of the 10 Doctors fan-made comic strip done by uh, Rich Morris, who is a really great, uh, he does a lot of storyboard art, and he did this really cool Doctor Who comic strip. So we'll you want to uh, check that out, trust me. Plus there's also uh, Doctor Who comic news that you may have missed out on uh, on my website, along with the latest listings from the previews catalogs. So if you want to know what's coming out to let your comic shop uh, know what to order for you, please make sure and check out DoctorWhoComics.com. And one last thing I wanted to do is mention uh, I have started a Patreon. If you go to Patreon.com slash DoctorWhoPanelToPanel, uh, I'm asking just little donations to help cover the cost of making this podcast. You know, a dollar donation, friend of the show. Um, I do have a $5 monthly donation where... You can download uh, episodes of the podcast that are just the interviews. I know a lot of people just love the interview part of my of my show. So if you want to donate $5 a month, you can do without listening to me chit-chat and just have the interview portion of the, of the show. I thought that might be a good tier. And also I'm going to throw on some other little uh, things, little books and stuff that uh, I find that I'm just going to send put up there. And maybe if you make a donation, I'll send you a a Doctor Who graphic novel or a comic book or something like that. So please be sure and check out patreon.com slash Doctor Who panel to panel. Help me cover the cost. I'm just trying to make enough to make ends meet on this. And uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. So with this little intro out of the way, let's go into the episode. 
In Doctor Who comic news for this episode of Doctor Who Panel to Panel, let's start off like we always do by checking out the calendar and find out what's coming out or what has come out and what will be coming out. We'll take a look at the month of July and start off with Wednesday, July 5th. That is when Doctor Who Doomsday Number 1 came out uh, from Titan Comics, and that is something you'll be hearing more about here shortly on this episode. And then let's jump a little bit ahead to the future to Thursday, July 20th. That is when Doctor Who magazine issue number 593 should be releasing over in the UK and digitally as well, featuring the new part of the Liberation of the Daleks comic strip. And then to round out the month of July, uh, it's on the calendar on the schedule from Titan Comics on Wednesday, July 26th. That is when Doctor Who Doomsday Part 2 of the two-parter will be coming out. And uh, so make sure you mark your calendars accordingly so you don't miss out on either of those two upcoming releases. In other Doctor Who comic news, uh, about the only thing I was able to find is that, of course, San Diego Comic Con is coming up, which is uh, just right around the corner. And uh, there's not too much in the way of, uh, of course, media things going on with the writer and actor strike going on out in California. But it's so San Diego Comic Con is kind of more of actual comic convention. But uh, as far as Doctor Who comics go, about the only thing I could find Doctor Who uh, related is that on Thursday, July 20th, from uh, 2 to 3 p.m. in room 5AB, they are do- Titan Comics is doing a Doctor Who Comics panel, uh, which will feature uh, writer Jody Hauser talking about the Doomsday 2 issues that she has written. And uh, maybe, hopefully, we will find out more about uh, Titan Comics' upcoming plans for uh, more Doctor Who content, you know, with the new series or the anniversary specials coming up in November. Uh, I'm hoping that they have something big planned. I know the Dan Slott uh, special that's coming out is definitely big, but uh, hopefully they'll have some news as far as maybe a new ongoing or things like that. So we'll keep our ears peeled uh, to see what news comes out from San Diego Comic-Con. Other than that, that's it. It's been quite a past couple weeks for Doctor Who Comic News, so let's jump into a review next. It is time once again to open the Pandorica on a new Doctor Who comic that just came out, and this time around we are going to take a look at Doctor Who Doomsday Number 1. This is the new comic from Titan Comics, which uh, features writing by writer Jody Hauser, Art by Roberta Ingranada, coloring by Warnia K. Sahadua, and lettering by Richard Starkings and Comic Crafts' Jimmy Betancourt. Uh, this story, let me give you a little intro. Do, I'll read you the previously from the front page. The Doctor is the last of the Time Lords, traveling alone through time and space. Able to regenerate and live many lives, the Doctor is a hero to the helpless. Doom is the universe's greatest assassin, currently traversing all of time and space in pursuit of the Doctor, who is the only one who can save her from the ever-approaching death. She has just 24 hours and a vortex manipulator to save herself before his, her fate is sealed forever. So that is, of course, the premise for this whole Doomsday multi-platform, multimedia crossover. Um, this issue doesn't really say what hour we're in of the story, but it does start out taking place in New York, 1883. Um, Doom shows up at a costume party, and at the same time, uh, Missy shows up impersonating the Doctor, and she doesn't really say why she's here other than to save the miserable planet and all that, which could be just her pretending to be the Doctor. But Doom is there to take care of 
a couple people, uh, cat people, called Lord and Lady Prettypaw. Uh, apparently they have showed up to steal a gem, which Doom uh, goes on to tell is when she confronts them about that, that this gem is a, a device that millennia from now could be used to destroy a planet. Of course, the uh, cat burglars know this, and so they are planning to steal this, I'm assuming to sell to the highest bidder. Um, yeah, of course, it's a big money and world-destroying weapons. So Doom says, I'm not going to let that happen. I am going to get that from you. And so she proceeds to have a pretty interesting-looking fight with them and ends up killing both of them. Sorry, a little bit of spoilers there. But she is Doom, the world's or the galaxy's best assassin, so you assume she would do some killing at some point. Anyway, she takes the bobble and she is able to use the Vortex Manipulator to escape Missy just in the nick of time, um, which leaves Missy wondering who this person is and where to, to go to find her. Um, Doom ends up going next to the Stormcage Containment Facility in the 52nd Century, um, supposedly in her pursuit of finding the Doctor, which she thinks is going to um, be there. But she is also going to let um, somebody at the the storm cage know that there's a traitor that is going to do something bad. Not really sure how that uh, she comes to that knowledge or how she figures that out. However, um, Missy shows up as well, claiming to be the doctor. She has been there before, um, and so the the person that Doom has been talking to says, "Oh, that's the doctor. I know the doctor," which. Leads to an interesting kind of a, a verbal battle, I guess. A kind of Doom trying to figure out a way to show that Missy is not the Doctor. Um, and at the same time, kind of is, willing, is able to escape. And this uh, little bit of more spoilers here, but not really that big a spoiler. Just because you know there's a second issue coming. Uh, Doom is able to escape Stormcage uh, and get away from Missy and off to another part of her, her trek to find the Doctor, and Missy left wondering who this person is and how she's going to find her next. As far as my review of this issue, um, I actually really enjoyed this issue. I think primarily because Jody Hauser did a really good job of uh, scripting the story. I'm not a big fan, actually, of how this story kind of plays out as far as like the settings and what goes on, and it kind of left me scratching my head a little bit as to... Um, things like, for example, that, that Doom all of a sudden knows, but we don't really know how she found that out, um, that kind of stuff. However, the verbal wordplay that especially uh, Missy as a character does, uh, I really enjoyed it. It sounded exactly like Missy would be on TV, and the, the verbal uh, fencing that goes on between Missy and Doom or Missy and uh, the the guard at Stormcage uh, is really entertaining. It's really fun. She, you can tell that Jody Hauser loves Missy as a character. I'm sure that's one of the reasons why Missy is showing up in this Doom story as opposed to maybe another uh, villain or a different version of the Master. Um, so that's it for the story. Artwork, uh, Roberta and Granada. I'm a big fan of Roberta's artwork. Her artwork never fails to impress me. The coloring is well done on this issue as well. Um, actually, this issue, 
made me wish that we would get more Doctor Who comics from this team. You know, we've been kind of without for for quite a while since the Origin miniseries. Um, I would like to see this team come back and do some more stuff. Uh, that being said, I am getting a little tired of Jody Hauser's writing on Doctor Who. This is, seemed like using the character of Missy kind of gave her some fresh life and some energy to actually put forth quite a bit of effort to tell a really good story or at least to make it sound really good. Um, it sounds like she kind of got reinvigorated here compared to the past writing that she's done, which I really haven't been all that impressed with. So, um, I give this one, I, I'm looking forward to the second half. I'm looking forward to see where it goes. I'm looking forward to more Missy uh, talking to people more than anything else. So I would actually recommend this issue I uh, even more than I normally do, just because it's a fun issue to read. Uh, I enjoyed reading it. I've read it a couple times now, and um, it's it's good. I really liked it, and I think you will as well. Exterminate. Like I said in my intro, way back in 2014, I had the pleasure of chatting with Roger Langridge. Roger is somebody who's been doing comics for a long time, whether it be writing them or drawing them or lettering them, as in the case of Doctor Who magazine. Uh, it was the late 90s when he started lettering the comic strip in Doctor Who magazine, and he has continued on ever since then. Well, I thought it'd be a great time to, to represent this interview. Uh, I had the pleasure of going back and listening to it again, and I discovered several things. One, the sound quality isn't as as good as you would expect, but this was also way back when I was just starting this, uh, this podcast, and I was using uh, a really cheap microphone and chatting via uh, Skype from here in the Midwest all the way to Australia, so the sound quality isn't that great. But I also discovered that this interview, uh, since I haven't listened to it since the episode came out back then, almost 10 years ago now, that uh, it was actually kind of a two-parter. I talked to Roger about his career, how he got involved in Doctor Who comics, and uh, what he was working on at the present time. But then also we took a look at the uh, issue of uh, the the IDW uh, 50th anniversary story, Prisoners of Time, that he did, which was a really good just a one-issue, one-shot thing. And uh, I talked to him about that particular issue, which, like I uh, have said, Roger does a lot of short stories, so a lot of Doctor's, Doctor Who stuff he has done have been just like one-shot specials or issues or uh, a one-shot comic in Doctor Who magazine. So in this uh, interview, which I hope you enjoy, you'll get to learn more about Roger Langridge. You'll also get to hear a little bit more about uh, how his part in the 50th anniversary story of the Prisoners of Time came to be. So um, I apologize in advance for the sound quality of this interview, but I think you'll enjoy it nonetheless. Here we are with an interview with uh, one of the great Doctor Who comic letterers of all time, because he's been doing it for, for quite some time, Roger Langridge. Um, how did you get involved with doing Doctor Who? Um, well, I uh, grew up in New Zealand, and um, I was involved with fanzines over there uh, when I was starting out as a cartoonist. And uh, I was appearing in the same fanzine a uh, thing called Razor, um, as Scott Gray, um, who's also from New Zealand and who was also, at the time, uh, he, he had aspirations to be an artist, oh. and he was drawing stuff uh-huh. uh, for Razor. So we were aware of one another, um, but we never actually met while we were living in New Zealand because we lived at opposite ends of, of the country. Um, and the first time we actually met was when we had both moved to London. Um, but we 
you know, we found that we got along pretty well and we started talking about maybe collaborating on something together. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, he was at that point um, working in an editorial capacity uh, at Doctor Who magazine as well as writing the comic strip. And so um, we had something that was totally unrelated to Doctor Who, um, which we were trying to get off the ground. And uh, Scott had that on his desk one day. And the then editor of Doctor Who magazine, Gary Gillett, saw it. And there were some caricatures in there. Um, there was one of the characters who was based on W.C. Fields. Uh-huh. And he saw it and he liked it. And he said, this guy can do caricatures. Do you think he could draw the Doctor? And so I ended up getting... Um, asked to draw uh it was an anniversary story i think it was the 35th anniversary story the, the happy, happy birthday one happy birthday that's right um and uh yeah i was i mean i, I was aware of doctor who and I'd, I'd seen some when i was growing up but i wasn't really um a, a big fan at that point and i really had no idea what i was getting into um <laughs> particularly since this story had not only every doctor but pretty much every villain um and i had to get the details right because you know this was being scrutinized by fans and they would complain if i got you know the number of round things on the daleks bottom half wrong or something oh, definitely. so uh, so uh, so yeah i got sent basically this a palette load of reference which was pre pre internet so it wasn't like I was getting sent JPEGs for reference. I was actually being sent back issues of Doctor Who magazine and photographs and um and uh videotapes. They were all VHS tapes. I think uh, Scott sent me City of Death um to try and sort of get me in the mood I guess. Yeah. Um so yeah I just had this crash course over a couple of weeks where I had to just absorb all this stuff. Um and uh, and produce this this eight page story. It was a lot of work for eight pages, but uh, but that sort of got me into it. Um, and they asked me back about a year later for another story. I forget what the anniversary was, but it was some anniversary. I think it was the anniversary of actually of Doctor Who magazine. Uh-huh. Um, so I did another story then, um, which was TV action. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, every so often they would have me back, um, mainly for the funny ones, uh, because that's sort of my natural style is, is humorous and that's sort of my natural inclination. Um, which was, uh, you know, it's, it's, it was, it was a fun thing to do. And, um, at one point, uh, after I'd been, after I'd done a couple of stories, um, the then letterer, um, uh, decided that she was going to quit and they were looking around for a letterer and, I sort of offered my services and, and I ended up becoming the, the regular letterer on the strip as well. So, um, I, I think that's helped me sort of, uh, you know, it, it helps to, uh, keep me in their minds when stories come up that I might be suitable for because I'm sort of, you know, talking to them every month anyway. Um, and then there was also the, uh, the review illustration section, which, um, started around issue 300 or so, uh, which, um, I think it was Alan Barnes who asked me to to regularly draw an illustration for that, which I did for, I guess, about five years or so, something like that. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, uh, thanks to that and Happy Death Day and a couple of other things, I've, I've essentially drawn every, yeah, like you were saying, I've drawn every Doctor one way or another, um, including including Peter Capaldi, actually, because I did a book cover with him uh, not long ago. Oh, really? So, uh so yeah, I've drawn, I've drawn a lot. 
the only way I haven't done is John Hurt. Um, except I have drawn him in another comic, so <laughs> it's yeah. So, so Rob, well, you have drawn them all. Yeah, I have. Yeah. So, so since you started working on Doctor Who, have you become a Doctor Who fan? Then have you watched a lot more? Um, yeah, I've caught up with. I mean, I, I got into Scott's Eighth Doctor strips, and um, that was sort of like for me, it was like watching the show really because it was it was a visual, mm-hmm. um, a visual uh, narrative um, form, uh, and and I got quite involved with that. It, uh, not only because I was working on it, but just because I was enjoying it, you know, as as comics. Yeah. Um, so when the the series was relaunched and the Ninth Doctor came along, I was I was sort of ready for it. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've, since since the new series came along, I've been, I you know, I haven't missed an episode, and I've caught up with quite a lot of the old ones as as well. Particularly since since I've had kids, um, my son, who's who's at the moment he's eight years old, um, but you know he's been watching it since before he could read uh-huh. and. Uh, after I'd watched all of the the, the modern series, he, he basically turned to me and said, "Well, what else is there?" So we've been watching, <laughs> we've been watching old Tom Baker episodes and stuff. So so you kind of lucked out. So, so when he when he wanted more, you have the the previous years worth of stuff to to go to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's you know, there's there's fifty odd years worth of stuff, I and mean, he's he, you know he hasn't watched everything, but he's been dipping into particularly the Tom Baker era. Mm-hmm. Um, I. I think that's really, you know, it's it's probably the uh, the most accessible. Um, I, th- I think perhaps some of the, particularly the later years, are, are for the hardcore fans. Mm-hmm. But uh, if if you're coming to it fresh, uh, Tom Baker is is hard to beat. Uh, yeah, definitely. You know, speaking to somebody on on in America on this side of the pond, the the Tom Baker stuff is where the majority of people in America know Doctor Who from. Right. Right. You know, if if you ask the normal the the common person on the street who Doctor Who is, well, up until recently, they would say, "Yeah, oh, it's the guy with the long scarf." But you know, now now it seems like there's a lot more people that know David only up to to speed on the new stuff. Yeah, yeah, I think it's um it's it's been the last couple of years that it's really started to to um, take hold in America, as far as I'm. Oh aware. yeah, it's it's huge here. Um, your your art style, it's kind of a. I was wondering what your influences were, you know, to when you started becoming an artist and and developing your own style. Um, where you, what stuff you read growing up, or or how you kind of developed your own thing. Um, well, like I, like I was saying, I've always been attracted to to humorous stuff. Um, so uh, I was reading a lot of the British humor weeklies, um, which you used to get in New Zealand. Um, things with titles like Buster and Whoopee and <laughs> these sort of basically exclamations plastered across the top of a uh-huh. of a comic book. And um, yeah, they they had um, usually one or two page humor strips. Um, so there was a lot of that stuff. Um, a couple of cartoonists who particularly influenced me were were a guy, was a guy called Ken Reed, uh, who invented this 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 character called Frankie Stein, um, who's like a big gormless Frankenstein monster character, but he's really kind of sweet and innocent and an idiot and his father's always trying to kill him um and uh so yeah that that was great fun uh and leo baxendale is another one who's who's a bit of a legend he's he uh when i was growing up he was doing these things in a comic called monster fun called um bad time bedtime storybooks which were basically um parodies of famous fairy tales or movies or you know this sort of thing but lots and lots of really tiny little details um, in the background, little jokes everywhere, cramming all the corners of the panels. Um, 
and uh, Mad, uh, Harvey Kurtzman and Bill Elder and, and you know, the, the really early co um, oh, yeah. color, Mad. Um, that was a huge influence yeah, on me. I can definitely see that influence. That's... Right, right. Yeah. Um, I was lucky, and uh, growing up in the 1970s, they were reprinting a lot of that stuff, so I was able to get access to the, the 1950s mm -hmm. stories. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, the, there was one in particular, Starchy, which was a, a parody of Archie, which just blew my <laughs> mind. Uh, it was just, you know, because I, 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 I knew Archie, and I knew these, this, this nice, clean style, and then there was this thing which was the same style, but really seedy, this kind of Robert Crummy kind of grungy thing, and it just totally blew my mind yeah so um so yeah i would i was I, I always had aspirations to be a humor cartoonist um and uh that's kind of the style that i that i developed and i started um publishing mini comics um and uh like i say getting into fanzines and university papers and things um with the aspiration of becoming a professional cartoonist at some point and um for most New Zealanders, that means leaving the country uh, because there is no comic industry in New yeah. Zealand. So, so you've got people like Scott and like me who save our pennies and, and move to, well, in my case, it was London because I, I was able to work legally in London. Oh, yeah. um, but you have to either go to America or, or the UK to, to work in English speaking comics, essentially. So, so that's what I did. And I've been here since 1990, pretty much. So you've been there for quite a while then. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm practically a Londoner now. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing I like about your art style is that your your artwork is very crisp and clean. To to me, it reminds me of some of like the kind of the turn of the century comics that I that I've seen. Kind of like you know, if you read a book about the history of comics and you see some political cartoons or that kind of thing from the the early 1900s or through you know 1920 through the Great Depression era. Um, that's that's a big compliment, yeah. Because I mean, I, I love the old American newspaper strips, the um, particularly the nineteen twenties kind of era. Um, that's that's a huge influence on me yeah, as well. That's the the feeling I can get, and I just love how how crisp your artwork looks. You know, you can it, your your artwork is one of those kind that if you you see it in a story, you know who who did that artwork. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's it's nice to have a personality out there, I guess. Um, yeah. Uh, particularly black your your black and white stuff like I'm, right now I'm flipping through uh, the glorious dead graphic novel and uh, okay the, yeah. your your black and white artwork uh, to me it's just how the you do an excellent job of of darking up the background so that your your figures pop out of the page yeah I um I learned learned to draw in black and white essentially because you know that was that was those were the outlets that I had. Um, and uh, when I first uh, moved to Britain, it was everything was still essentially in black and white. It became the, the color was starting to creep in, and now everything's color. But um, black and white was still the norm then. And obviously, when you're doing mini comics and things, it was always black and white. So that's basically my training. Um, uh, and I've had to sort of learn to to work for color uh, over the years, trying to sort of eliminate some of the unnecessary cross hatching and things like that. But, that was sort of part of my natural style for a long time. And uh, for those people who have not read the Happy Death Day uh, strip, I highly suggest they grab the Glorious Dead graphic novels to read it. Just you, you pack so much stuff into those eight pages. It must have taken you forever to draw them. Yeah, oh, it did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and there was a bit of back and forth with you know things like likenesses and um, uh, details on some of the monsters and things like that as well. Uh, so, so yeah, everything got a 
a good going over several times before it was before it was ready to go. Um, uh, other other things that you've done outside of Doctor Who, you your critically critically acclaimed run on the Muppet Show comic, um, the Thor: The Mighty Avenger. How did you get into writing comics? Um, I uh, have always done my own comics, um, whether it's uh, mini comics or, or for a while I was self-publishing my own title um, called Fred the Clown. And uh, I had a web strip that I was doing for a long time. I've always worked on my own stuff, when, even when I've been doing work for hire stuff or licensed stuff. I, to me, part of being a cartoonist is doing your own work and, you know, any, all of the other stuff, the, the licensed work and working on other people's characters is essentially a means to an end. Yeah. It's, it's a way of earning a living while I do my own stuff. So um, I was doing this Fred the Clown comic um and uh through that a lot of people saw my work and i was writing that myself obviously mm-hmm. um and that started to appear on a website called modern tales and uh i started to do work for marvel based on the fact that a modern tales cartoonist became an editor at marvel and asked me if i would be interested in doing some stuff for marvel oh, and uh, uh and the disney um sorry the muppet stuff um, came about because another cartoonist on Modern Tales became an editor at Disney Adventures magazine and asked me to do some Muppet mm-hmm. stuff for them. So it's it's all basically because people have been reading the stuff that I've been doing myself um, and then asking me to work on licensed properties or whatever um, on the basis of that, on, on, on knowing my work from, from my personal stuff. So that's kind of how I got into it, by the back door. <laughs> I didn't really sort of set out. I wasn't sort of pitching stuff to try and get work at marvel or whatever but people had seen my own personal stuff and i guess liked it enough to think that i might be able to do um the kind of stuff that they were in, uh, responsible Maybe for there's nothing wrong with that you know if, if somebody notices your work and says i want you to try doing the muppets do you think you can handle that were you a big muppet, muppet yeah, fan yeah, yeah. over the years um yeah I, I was uh certainly a big fan of the original tv show um not so much the movies mm-hmm. but uh I was getting a bit old by the time the movies came along, but the Muppet Show came along at just the right time for me. Um, and so I've um, I've actually done a lot of comics set in a kind of vaudeville milieu, and I think a lot of that is simply because I fell in love with the Muppets at that time, and they had that kind of setting, you know, all the backstage antics and the curtains and all that. Um, so you'll see a lot of that in, in the comics that I was doing, just, you know, my own personal comics. So when the Muppets came along, it was a, it was a pretty good fit for me. I was already doing that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, it was it was a, it was a good job to do. It was, um, it, you know, if I'm going to be doing licensed properties and other people's characters, that's the kind of thing I'd like to be yeah, doing. And your your style definitely fits that that kind of material. Yeah, thank you. Yes, I hope so. Um, I, w- I was happy when you started doing the Popeye comic for IDW. Yeah, yeah. Like I was saying, the, um, the those old newspaper strips are, are a huge, huge influence on me. Um, and uh, so, yeah, doing Popeye was a dream come true because uh, I'm a huge fan of E.C. Seeger, the original Popeye cartoonist. Yeah, I, I, um, I know when I was a kid, I, I grew up in the 70s and I read a lot of those Popeye strips when I was growing up. And your, your writing on Popeye definitely had that same sort of feel. It definitely took me back to my childhood. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, we, we um, all wanted to try and make it as close to the original strips as we could. Um, and, that, you know, we, that we, 
we we had a chat when I first got the gig with the editors and everything, and we were all on the same page about that. So so uh, that went really well. Uh, do you have any upcoming work that you'd like to promote or talk about? Well, at the moment, I'm uh, I, I've got uh, a Rocky and Bullwinkle series that I'm doing with Mark Ebenier. That's um, up to its third issue. There's one more of those to come out. Um, that's from IDW. Um, and uh, right now, I'm working on a graphic novel for Archaea, um, which hasn't been announced yet. So I'm not actually supposed to talk too much about it. I can just say that I'm working on it, and it's you know taking me all my time. Um, <laughs> and that's going to be out in November. So um, yeah, uh, hopefully I'll be able to talk about that soon. But at the moment, it's uh, still hush. Oh, that's okay. So, so sorry no, about that. Okay. <laughs> a teaser to the listeners is is never a bad thing, and something I haven't heard about, so I can tell uh, or be on the lookout for it come around September when it'll be in the previous catalog. Uh, yeah, that's probably right. Yeah, that sounds about right. Well, awesome. Well, thank you for uh, giving me a kind of a up to speed biography of how you got into to <laughs> Doctor Who, and uh, thank you for being on the show. You will be deleted. In this episode of Doctor Who Panel to Panel, we are going to talk about one particular issue of the Doctor Who Prisoners of Time uh, anniversary series that IDW put out. We're going to cover issue number eight, which is the Ace Doctor issue. And joining me to talk about it is Roger Langridge, the artist on the issue. Hello, Roger. Hello again. How are you? <laughs> doing good. Um, how, good. how did you get involved in doing this Ace uh, Doctor story for IDW? Um, well, I think uh, one of the things that uh, they wanted to do when they started doing the, the Prisoners of Time series was get as many people who had worked on the characters before as they possibly could. Um, and since I'd done some Eighth Doctor stories, I think, you know, I must have been uh, on their list. And maybe I was the only one who would do it for the money or something. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, they, they, I'd, I'd already... Um, I had a working relationship with IDW already because I've been working on their Popeye comics. So... Um, I guess you know I was also easy to find. That must have been, that must have contributed to their decision as well. Um, but yeah, so they they asked me uh, quite a few months before um, it was due out. Actually, it was uh, I think it must have been about six or eight months even before before I actually started working on it that they they approached me and I made sure I set aside some time to do it. And yeah, so I guess because you know it was for the anniversary year and they wanted to make sure that every issue came out on time so they tried to book everybody in advance sure, make sure it all stayed on schedule so they could get it all wrapped yeah, up by yeah. the time the, the actual 50th anniversary came about yeah I guess so um, what was it like to work with the Tipton brothers was it is it different working off of their script as compared to uh, like Scott Gray or uh, Jonathan Morris doing the Doctor Who magazine stuff um, well, yeah, certainly the pacing is really different for the for the American comics because um, you know with the magazine you've got a, a very small number of pages and and it tends to be packed quite tightly and you know you sometimes have like eight or nine panels to a page um, and lots and lots of dialogue and uh, the pacing in in uh, the American ones or certainly in this one was a lot more sort of laconic I guess than I'm used to it was. Um, uh, fewer panels to a page and and uh, sort of dialogue broken up between panels where it would all be in one panel for the magazine. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that would, that was definitely an adjustment. Um, had to try and sort of figure out uh, a way of shifting gears visually, really, I suppose, just to try and uh, accommodate uh-huh. it. 
yeah, if you um, can if you compare this story to uh, some of the stories you've done for Doctor Who magazine, you can. It seems like there's a lot more open space in a panel, and things are spread out a, a lot more. Yeah, partly that's also because I wasn't sure about how much room to allow for the lettering as well. I, I know how big the lettering is going to be in Doctor Who magazine, so I know exactly how much space to allow for it because I'm doing the lettering, you know. Um, but with this one, um, I wasn't sure what the normal um, space it would take up would be. And um, I was aware that there would likely be changes made by the BBC as well. So I wanted to make sure that there was room for, for those. So I was basically pretty generous with the amount of space I left for dialogue um, uh, as much as I could be. Uh, was there a lot of any revisions or anything that you had to do because of the BBC saying, no, we don't want you to do this or no, this isn't quite right? Um, they pretty much left it alone. Um, I, I think I, I was um, lucky in that I've always been given a bit of leeway for um, likenesses because my style is quite cartoony. Mm -hmm. um, I think some of the more photorealistic artists possibly get to uh, asked to, to make things look a bit more um, like the actual actors in question. Whereas when I'm sort of applying a degree of abstraction to it, I think I have maybe a little bit more leeway. I, I don't know for sure, but uh, they pretty much left me alone, so that that was that was okay. Oh, well, for for those people who are listening who haven't read the story, uh, basically the Eighth Doctor goes to to visit Grace, uh, who doesn't get used all that often in the comic strip, and basically takes her on a, a little adventure, and they go to uh, a planet where the the populace of the planet have kind of been enslaved by the, this alien race that comes down and takes the kids from time to time. Yeah, actually, I thought the, um, the setup was a little bit Star Trek-y in a way. Um, and I just wondered if that was deliberate. Perhaps it was because, you know, the Yates Doctor was supposed to be the the, um, the American version uh -huh. of the show. You know, it was supposed to be something that would, that would launch an American series. So I'm just wondering if the Star Trek kind of setup um, with, you know, the peasant village... Um, and all that sort of thing. It was deliberate. Um, you know, now, yeah. now that you mention it, I didn't even to think of it that way, but going back now, yeah, I can definitely see that. And maybe it's because the Scott and David Tipton are, are very well-versed in Star Trek, and they've written you know, be, a lot of Star be. Trek comics for IDW. They kind of said, well, we can kind of take a Star Trek-type premise and, and do a Doctor Who spin on it. Yeah, possibly. Or, or it could be just, you know, they had 11 different setups to do. <laughs> they were trying to mix it up a bit, you know. That, that could be too. And actually, to me, this story kind of worked for the Eighth Doctor because the Eighth Doctor, I'm, I'm, I always think of the, the Paul McGann Doctor as a very caring, um, very much kind of a, a people person, even before, like, David Tennant came along. And, uh, having a story about how the, the, the children are taken by these aliens and um, how he wants to find out why. And, you know, he, he cares about this race and uh, even just by meeting them and wants to know what's going on. Uh, it just kind of fit his, his persona. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Um, although I guess the, um, you know, the care for the children kind of thing goes, goes right back. But, um, but definitely that's a, that's a part of McGann's approach but, but all in all i thought you know story-wise it was it was an okay story um your artwork is amazing as always and thank you very much <laughs> I, I i was a bit concerned that it might be um you know a bad fit considering that you know everybody else is working in a kind of a different 
idiom, really. Um, but uh, I, I thought it would be just yeah. fine. Perhaps issue by issue, it was. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if it works so well in the collection. I think issue by issue, it probably worked better. Yeah, and to to me, it worked just because I've been a long time reader of Doctor Who magazine, and and they, I thought they did a good job of getting artists who are known for particular incarnations of the Doctor to come back and and do artwork and. Your your artwork always stood out in the the Ace Doctor run, uh, just because it it's different than than what they normally had in the book. So to me, it it, it fit perfectly. Thanks. Yeah, well, I I do like it when they they sort of break up the um the the usual photorealistic style that people like Martin Geraghty and and Mike Collins use with with people like Dan McDade or Paul Grist, where it's just this much more individualistic style it's uh, i think i think perhaps you need both to give it uh, to give it some balance but um when it's all consistently photorealistic i, I find that a bit it wears me down yeah. a bit it's nice to nice to break it up occasionally and then you, you you're happy to see the photorealistic style come back again after after you've you've had a change of pace and, and i i definitely agree with that and if you go through and read the eighth doctor graphic novels from panini your stories your your style always fits the kind of story that they they want to tell. It's usually a a humorous type thing, and after a, a long story like the Glorious Dead or like the Flood, to have your your stories kind of break up that 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 serious tone of a story with something fun was always a nice change of pace. Yeah, yeah, I think that's necessary for drama to work. Really, I think you need. Um, I mean, if if everything's serious all the time and grim all the time. It, it it just becomes flat, you know. Um, I, I think for the drama to seem more dramatic, you need um, to counterpoint it. And again, for, you know, by the same token, for the humour to seem funnier, you need some sort of emotional weight to to back it up as well. I think you know, it's it's a question of. I think good writing has to balance both of those demands. Yeah, you know? definitely. And the, and the humour is a nice palate cleanser for in between serious tone stories. Yeah, yeah, I, I like to think so. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, they keep thinking that because then I get the occasional yeah. job. It's nice. <laughs> well, the the eighth actor story you did for the Prisoners of Time series is in volume two of the the IDW trade paperbacks. Um, it's also uh, one of the issues that any listener of Panel to Panel can find probably at their local comic book store. And uh, I, it's one of the cogs in the big anniversary machine that was the story and. Uh, I will be doing reviews on other parts of this as time goes on, so I suggest listeners go track it down and read it. And Roger, thank you for joining me on Panel to Panel, and hopefully we'll have you again on sometime. Thank you very much. It's been, uh, been a pleasure to be, be on. I hope you enjoyed that interview with comic creator Roger Langridge. I know I enjoyed listening to it again for the first time in almost 10 years. For various different reasons. One, there was a lot of stuff in there that I totally forgot about. And uh, two, I'm rather happy with uh, listening to an old episode of Doctor Who Panel to Panel compared to something like this brand new episode to hear how much I have uh, improved as a podcaster, how sound quality has improved, how I think I've put together a much better show than I did back then when I first started out. So, But it is nice to go back and look at something like that, uh, like a past interview. For those of you who might not have heard it back then, uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Doctor Who Panel to Panel as well. Please, like I said in the intro, do me a favor. Check out my 
uh, Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash Doctor Who panel to panel. Also check out DoctorWhoComics.com for a brand new comic every Monday and Thursday, uh, Doctor Who, The Ten Doctors, and also uh, all your latest Doctor Who comic news. So, thank you very much for downloading this episode. I appreciate it. And until next time, this is Jeremy Bument saying bye. Doctor Who Panel to Panel, the podcast about Doctor Who comics, thanks you for downloading this episode. Let us know what you thought about this episode or of Doctor Who comics in general. You can find us socially on Facebook at Doctor Who Panel to Panel, on Twitter at Doctor Who P2P, 2 being the number 2, and online at DoctorWhoComics.com. Download previous episodes via your favorite podcast service and find the complete catalog of episodes featuring amazing interviews with creators past and present at archive.org. Just search for Doctor Who Panel to Panel. Thank you.